Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Michael Lerner and John Goldthorpe as they discuss imagination as reality. John Goldthorpe, welcome to the New School. Michael, thank you so much. It's great to be back. It is a joy to have you back. Uh, John, you've been immersed in archetypal psychology for more than 20 years. Um, in 1989, at the suggestion of James Hillman, you studied with Gordon Tappan at Sonoma State and stayed on for several years to teach the graduate seminar in archetypal psychology. Uh, and you've done many other things. You've been a, a deep, massage, deep tissue massage therapist, uh, influenced by uh, Stanley Kellerman. Uh, you've worked as a clinical psychologist, and you've lived in West Marin since 1994. Uh, so uh, it was a joy to have you here before to talk about James Hellman, and I'm so glad you're back with the title of our conversation, Imagination as Reality. Thank you, Michael. Uh, the title, Imagination as Reality, is quite a claim, and it's interesting because... Uh, for Hillman, whenever you have a this is that, you know you're already trapped and caught and the work of psychology is to get you out of that trap. That's the whole task. Uh, because, to get, because your imagination is frozen the moment you have a this is that. So to say, I, I smiled afterwards when I saw the title, Imagination is Reality. We're already caught. But you know what? It's a great place to be caught. And so today I want to explore how that may, that may be not only sort of true, it may be the bottom line truth, the grounding truth from which all our other truths emerge. So that's, that's the topic in relation to the title. Uh, but what I'm really up to is more specific than that. And that is I really want to give uh, you through my connection to Michael, a sense of Hillman's sensibility. How does he think, how does he think and how does it make sense for him? Because you can really only begin to enter his world when you can think like him. And you get to a point where you're familiar and you read him and you go, oh, of course he would have said that. You wouldn't have been able to say that uh, because you don't have his background in education and learning and speak several languages probably. Um, but it makes sense. And that's really the most important thing to me is for it to make sense for you. You don't have to, I don't care if you agree or disagree, but you really can't honestly disagree uh, until it makes sense to you, right? John, so, let me yeah. just say, for new listeners to mm -hmm. the podcast who don't know who James Hillman is, ah. why don't we just start with a brief statement of who James Hillman is? Sure. So... Historically, to understand Hillman, we can put him in the strain of Jungian psychologists. Uh, he was the first uh, founding director of studies at the Jung Institute in Zurich, and he uh, admired, learned from, had some interaction with Jung, and fully incorporated into his own sensibility uh, Jungian psychology. And then there were some things that he saw as time went on that he felt were either being codified in Jung, meaning that uh, an approach to making sense of the world had become either a theology or a system, both of which he strenuously wants to avoid. Uh, 
So for Hillman, he never wants to have a system. He doesn't ever want to create a space where there's a structure that's fixed. So it's always about opening up. And that's what happens when you imagine. As soon as you imagine, your definitions fall away because you see multiple sides of something. So while Hillman deeply admired Jung and sees him as foundational, as he does Freud in that line of depth psychologists, he went off and founded his own school to try and address what he thought was missing um, and to, in some ways, deepen Jung's approach to Jung's statement that image is psyche. And from image, we're going to get to imagination. And from psyche, we're going to get to the gods and goddesses. And just to add to that, um, after he got fired from the Jung Institute, having had an affair with a patient that blew up, despite the fact that everybody else was having affairs with patients, he went to the Warburg Institute in London, where there was this tremendous collection of archetypal images, mm-hmm. and there uh, felt a sense of enormous opening, uh, particularly around Marsilio Ficino, the Renaissance Neoplatonist mm-hmm. astrologer, uh, and felt that he had found a Western tradition of archetypal thought that preceded Freud and Jung mm-hmm. on the basis of which he could construct his new archetypal psychology. That's right. Okay. So that's a nice segue into f- filling this out for our listeners who are new to Hillman. So Hillman situates his work in uh, the Greeks and the Greeks' orientation to their gods and their stories. He does that for a couple reasons. As, as Michael said at the Warburg Institute, uh, he felt that he found the roots of uh, psychology in the stories of psyche, of our soul. And that the, the Greeks, because of their polytheistic mentality, meaning that they honored many gods or many perspectives, the, 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 the individual had to be fluid in relation to their own life and in their culture because there were many gods to honor and many gods to see the world through. There were many perspectives to have. That's what he means by polytheistic. Um, so this return to Greece, he also makes the case that no matter what our nationality, no matter what our religion now, our culture is primarily Greek in its inception and its key ideas, and we are Christian in our hearts. Whether No matter what our religion or our background, because of the strength of those positions in coming through the culture. So unconsciously, that's something that we're always having to deal with. It's not that it's right or wrong, it's just there. And part of his work is pulling that out so that you might have some freedom to choose to be that way or not. But the stories make sense to us. They kind of resonate because most of our language is infused not only with these ideas, but with these words that are the roots of our language. So it's there all the time, and it's with us. So for us to be individuals who can have any sense of an actual free choice, one has to be aware of this. So now we get into two of the uh, often, what should I say, difficult, challenging aspects of Hillman. He's always a historian. He always places what he's doing not only against the background of the Greeks and mythology, which in some respects he sees as timeless, but also the changes in our relationship to ourselves and our culture. So he's always, his writing is always dense because he's always invoking the history. 
And then he's always invoking uh, etymology and the history of words to unpack what it is, the sensibilities that we have that are portrayed in our words, what our words mean to us and how they came to mean what they mean is a reflection of who we've seen ourselves to be. And this is one of the most difficult aspects for him is that he sees us all as individuals, but individuals against a cultural backdrop. And no matter how unique an individual each one of us is, we are only that in relation to our culture. We are an expression of our culture as much as our culture is an expression of us. And it goes both ways. And we often in our time don't want to look the other way and see how we are an expression of our culture. So this, is, this, this oftentimes brings up uh, some tension. So why this essay today? Why the thought of the heart? Uh, I wanted to give you... Uh, a sense of him through his own words. I knew there was, there was no easy place to enter if we're really going to get into him. Uh, there's no, no such thing as a light human essay, really. Um, in the later years when he was writing for popular culture, there are things that are lighter, but they don't have the weight that I think we need to really get a sense of him. Um, so I'm not going to pretend that this is an easy 50-page essay that was originally uh, a lecture uh, the, for the Aronis Foundation in 1979. But what it has in it, and we'll look at probably the first third of the essay, is this real sense of the imagination's role in our everyday life. And this term heart, how do we relate to our heart? And then he has this phrase, thought of the heart. Well, in our culture, we're not taught to think that thinking can come from the heart we're taught to think it comes from the mind. And he's saying, because we don't have a philosophy and a psychology of the soul or the heart, we can't think rigorously about the heart. And then he makes one of his wild, wild statements that the instinct of the soul, the soul's hunger is for reflection. As central to, the, as central to our needs as hunger, procreation, and aggression is the need to reflect. He says that just comes in with being human. I mean, that is pretty wild in a culture that, you know, either deifies or disparages his thinking, but to think about it as, as he says, as instinctual, that we have a hunger to reflect. And then he gets even wilder. He says maybe ideas come into being simply to feed that hunger. Mm. So it's the other way around he's looking at it which is the way he usually does everything. He looks at things upside down. So today, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty, is going to be our central theme. Now, a Aphrodite, you may recall, is the goddess who appears, whose favorite time is sunrise and sunset. With Hillman, we're learning to think through images, not about images. So if we think about sunrise and sunset and Aphrodite and put them together, we're, we're seeing an expression of the qualities that she loves that make sense to her. And think about the quality of light, sunrise and sunset. Not quite light, not quite dark. Kind of ambiguous. Think of the quality of light on the sea foam from which she is birthed. It's bedazzling, isn't it? 
That's Aphrodite's time of day. Now let's go to another god, Pan, the god of the nightmare, the god of rape, the god of rhythm. What's his time of day? High noon. Think of the Westerns, high noon. What's special about the quality of light at noon? If, you're, if the sun is directly overhead, what happens? You cast no shadow, right? It's the time, and you feel the reverberation when I say you cast no shadow. This is, this is Hillman doing his thing by invoking these images that you start to hear an echo. And when you hear an echo, you're in a psychological space. Meaning that it's ambiguous. You can't define it, but you can feel it and you can start to move with it because there are stories in every direction. Another principle is that no God is ever talked about as an archetype alone. All the gods are in relationship. They're stories just like our lives are stories of relationship. So Aphrodite has a relationship with Pan, and Aphrodite also has a relation to Psyche, as does Pan. So the stories start to unfold. And Hillman believes the story of psychology is the story of Psyche, is the story of our souls, and in contemporary terms is the story of our heart. And because we don't have a way to think about our heart, our soul, our psyche, we are, we are really lost. And what contemporary psychology has done under the spell of what he would call literalism, going into a kind of a scientizing of psychology, this means that, oh, Stuart, I'm sorry your father beat you, but that's why, <laughs> right? A causal connection. Hillman's never interested in causal connections. He's interested in context and what the context reveals. So Aphrodite, in one story, will behave one way and another behave another and another behave another because the context has changed. So you can't say what Aphrodite is other than name what her, what her attributes are and what her desires are. And in relationships, she's always trying to work those out. But as, as all of us, in any relationship, we work these things out differently. Yeah? So everything is against the background of the gods. That's the Hillman orientation uh, in a nutshell. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Uh, well, easy in the sense that one can understand the principles. There's, oh, I forgot another little detail. There's your soul, but you are not your soul. The human task in life is to care for the soul. And when we, when we differentiate and learn the stories and see how they relate to our lives, we're fed. The soul, excuse me, the soul is fed and we somehow feel nourished. So the trick is in working with these stories to uncover the soul's needs and the soul's desire. And as he says, the soul's desire is actually for reflection, to hear these stories and give attention to them. And along the way, mysteriously, not only is the soul healed, but so are we. That's the simple, quick version. Now I want to look at the actual essay and see how he, how he unfolds these details. Yes? So there's one more piece I wanted to say, and that is I'm interested in Hillman, and I was interested in coming to you today because 
what he's about and what this story is about is about the relationship really of love and imagination and their, and their connection and that being the basis of making a life. Last time I was here, I said, I'm a romantic. What's that mean? A romantic, uh, quoting Keats, beauty is truth, truth is beauty. It's all you know on earth and that's all you need to know. Well, today we're going to see a little relationship between truth and beauty, and it's not quite the truth that we always see, but he's going to make the case, I think, pretty strongly um, that if you lead a beautiful life in the way that he's going to come to express it, uh, truth, justice, temperance, the virtues are close at hand. And you don't have to think about them much because he's go as he's going to express, you will have an animal reflex, a relationship to your heart that you can trust, and the conceptualizing will not be so necessary. And this is pretty difficult given that he's going to throw out, I counted yesterday in the essay in the first 20 pages, there's probably 30 ideas, which are, as you'll see, are different than concepts. And we're not going to do all the ideas. I want to get what's your appetite to read the essay and start to work with the ideas and work them with a way that they really touch you. That's, my, that's really my goal. Okay? The primary principle, he says here, that the thought of the heart is the thought of images, that the heart is the seat of imagination, that imagination is the authentic voice of the heart, so that if we speak from the heart, we must speak imaginatively. So I wanted to start with Aphrodite, little vignette of Pan and Psyche. And to complete the picture, which we're not going to talk about today, but needs to be honored, Aphrodite, excuse me, Psyche is a devotee of Aphrodite. The problem begins in the story because Aphro, excuse me, Psyche is so beautiful that she's getting more attention than Aphrodite. And this is not acceptable to Aphrodite. As the story unfolds, eventually, Psyche makes her way to Hades to have a meeting with Persephone, the goddess of death. Aphrodite, sunrise and sunset, daylight, wants to bind you in physical, sensate relationships, not only to one another, but she wants you to have an erotic life day in and day out. If you are a devotee of Aphrodite, you have an erotic life. Everything is a gesture of something beautiful. You find it beautiful. Now, beautiful, Hillman's going to complexify, but beautiful is there. Psyche goes to the underworld. Aphrodite never goes to the underworld. She does not have the capacity to go. But the soul, our soul, has the capacity and needs to go to the underworld to fulfill its destiny, so to speak. Persephone is the goddess of death and what we call destruction. As I said, Aphrodite wants to bind us. Aphrodite wants to set us free by breaking the chains. That's called death, destruction. Any creative act has that pull in it for renewal. Persephone. Yes. So, uh, uh, thank you, Persephone. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, 
So in this, you see there's always a circle or a polarity going from one to the other. Today, we're going to be talking about the daylight vision, but the undercurrent is always there. And that undercurrent we're going to find throughout in Hillman, even today, in that he is always trying to break our fixed positions. And as you may have found in your life, it's hard to distinguish your fixed positions from you and who you think you are, right? You know this is what it's really about. You know this, what it, this is what it really means. In Hillman's language, that's called pathologizing. We all do it. It's essential to life. But if, it, if you're stuck on the same pathology your whole life, that's called trauma, and you're probably not very healthy in that you're stuck, right? So life is this continual movement, we could say, between Aphrodite and Persephone. And the link between the two? Psyche, your soul. Yeah? So that's the story. Hillman begins this essay with a tribute uh, to someone he admired uh, greatly, a man named Henry Corban. Henry Corban was a scholar of uh, Islam, particularly Ibn Arabi uh, and Shuhardi, a mystic, an orientation uh, that we would say is the esoteric strain, could say is the esoteric strain of Islam. This is not the Islam you hear about every day. But essential to that orientation is the idea of imagination being the ground upon which the divine and the human meet. That's the only place the human and the divine meet is through the imagination. Now, this is Hillman's basic position. And that, the, and that everyone we meet, when I look at each of you, you are an imaginal figure who happens to be on earth that therefore has physical characteristics. And those physical characteristics are absolutely essential because we need to talk with one another and have a conversation. And that conversation, when it reaches the imaginal pitch that Hillman wants, is, call, is, is, a, is a kind of, he calls it a, a recit, there's a recitation, a revelation. Our speech is revealing if we're speaking in images to one another and seeing each other as images. So the, the, what he calls deliteralizing is, yes, we have a physical body. Yes, all these physical things affect the quality of our attention. But when you're in the imagination, your attention is focused, uh, it's focused on each other, as, each other and everything as an image. Let me, let me uh, um, come in here for a minute. Um, we've done a, before I got totally fascinated with archetypal psychology, I spent several years reading Ibn Arabi, and we did a series of New School conversations on Ibn Arabi, who many would say is the greatest Sufi mystic, and um, some would say. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as you said, Henri Corbin uh, was fascinated by Ibn Arabi and wrote this extraordinary book called Alone with the Alone, uh, which uh, Harold Bloom, the great Yale literary critic, did a remarkable introduction to. I'm just sort of relating that to the group. But the, the specific thing that has come up in previous conversations is that, as you say, uh, Hillman starts this with a, a, an homage to Corbin. Uh, 
But there are those who argue and those who say that Corbin was actually very disturbed by Hillman claiming that, by Hillman claiming Corbin's view of the uh, imaginal uh, to the human as the same as his. In other words... Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think this is important because for Corbin, the imaginal realm was a place where truly divine forces came down to meet the human. We go up to the imaginal, the divine come down, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For Hillman, it's, I would say, at the very least, not clear that the divine imaginal is real in any way other than that imaginal forces are real for him. There weren't, you know... So, let, so let, let me forces. try and do this succinctly, yeah. because yeah. this is... This is, this is ours, and it's worth exploring, right. but to get through. Right. So Hillman, yes, plays, pays his homage to Corban, I said, as is his take on right. Corban. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think uh, Tom Cheatham, who's been here, who right. has wonderful books on Corban, in the last book of the title, I'm forgetting the title of that, right. has a very succinct essay on Hillman and Corban, where he goes into this very well. Okay. And explores this territory. But... To address your question directly, Michael, which will get us keep us on track, is that for Hillman, I think the smile on my face would be is for for you to say that Aphrodite and all the other gods that he invokes are not divine on par with Corban's uh, monistic theophonic god. Mm-hmm. I think Hillman would give a wry smile. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he does uh, stay ambiguous on this, but I think this is a way to make a clear distinction. Hillman is metaphorical through and through, so he doesn't even ask us to take the gods literally. He says, all you can ever know is what is in your imagination. For you to posit that this is the way it really is is not a position he's interested in. Because as soon as you have that, you have a religion with a fixed structure. And metaphorical life goes to metaphysical life. Yes? And so he's all about the meta, but what the meta is for is for images. It's not meta for the physical. Okay? That's his distinction. So these are, I think you're absolutely right, and I can imagine uh, to Hillman's uh, heartbreak, Corban being upset. Mm-hmm. with what he did. Because Hillman genuinely adored Coban. Yeah. I missed that. Meta is images, not... The, what, no, my play was, uh, what meta is for is images. All images are inherently ambiguous. As soon as you say what an image means, you now have a definition, which is the definition of exactly what a metaphor is not. Right? So it's interesting. If you look in the dictionary and you look up literal... This is where we are. Not a metaphor. <laughs> that's, the de- <laughs> that's the definition of literal. So what literal is trying to do is make sure there's no ambiguity. That has its place and it's its own kind of mystery, right? So our science works because of that orientation, because it takes itself to be truth. And emergency room medicine is not thinking about images and the God behind it. And when I break my leg, I want to go to the emergency room. So this orientation has its place, 
but it can't be the only place we are. Well, let me just take this one further step and then we'll mm. go, go on. Um, I can agree with Hillman that the numinous above doesn't have a fixed nature, that the Hindus would see it one way, the Greeks another. You know, each of us has our own version of it. But I wonder if you can tell us, John, whether in your view of Hillman, all of this essentially comes um, uh, from the psyche, or whether, as with Jung, the numinous is authentic and real and powerful in a very uh, in a in a sense that goes beyond just not just the imagination that goes beyond the imagination. So for example, the the phenomenon which Jung spent so much time on of synchronicity. Right, synchronicity involves the universe engaging with us in ways we can't understand. Mm -hmm. From my reading of Hillman, Hillman takes this sort of uh, you know it, his world is fundamentally agnostic, secular, but with this sense that the numinous resides within the imagination. But tell me if that's right or wrong. That's my key question. Right. I would never say Hillman's view is secular. Okay. A secular view is a historical view okay. that explains the present uh, via the past, that actually lives in the fantasy of the past to understand the present and projects into the future, okay. so actually is never here now. That's the historical perspective. Right. You're listening to a conversation with Michael Lerner and John Goldthorpe. Hillman's perspective, as is Jung and all these guys, their depth psychologists, is vertical. Yeah. And the vertical position is always one of enveloping uh, how should we say eggs? In other words, if we talk about spirit, envelops imagination, envelops the body, envelops the physical. And th this is often considered as a hierarchy or levels of being. It's not a hierarchy at all. It's just in terms of what influences what. I can do something material that you all understand, but I can also say the ground upon which I stand is the words that give me the entry into Aphrodite's world through conveying her reality of the water. The ground upon which I now stand is an image, not the ground. You can understand that. The fact that you can understand that sh demonstrates what I mean by encompassing realities. And the reality of the imagination is more fluid, and this is what bugs us, is less predictable. <laughs> yes? That's okay. the difficulty. So where we go with yeah. this in terms of spirit, Hillman invokes actually, he has spirit words in here, and he means them... Which, what can we say? We can never say sincerely with Hillman, can we? He means them actually in that he says, and he follows Corban, and I think he takes Corban fully, the only way we ever interact with spirit that we can talk about with words and images is through the imagination. I get that. So we feel it, and I don't think he ever doubts that we feel it but he's unwilling to take a metaphysical position. That really helps. Thank okay. you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what I want to do now is I want to read a little section because I think it's important to understand when we're talking about psychology, what we're talking about, and Hillman's going to talk about the birth of, of depth psychology uh, with Freud and what happened to love and imagination. 
and that we as moderns, no matter what tradition, if you think you don't have anything to do with Freud and your psychology, well, first of all, you're wrong because everything understood about psychology comes through that channel. But secondly, um, that we're all in, we're all infected. He would say. Uh, with this sensibility. So let me just read this little piece. So this is after he's been talking about Corban and the importance of the imagination and imaginal figures. And he's trying to make a link between Freud and Corban, which he says is a stretch, but he says, give me a little room. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. The beginning of psychoanalysis are marked by two signal events. Looking at them with the eye of Corban, we can see them as having the same source. These events, you will remember, are the fact that the very first patient from Freud's colleague, Joseph Brewer, treated by the new method, fell so in love with the good old doctor that it, this transference as it came to be called, drove Brewer out of psychoanalysis forever. So Hillman, in his way, has just given us an image. He hasn't explained anything. He's just given us a little picture of the birth of psychotherapy. Then he goes on, the second event was that as the, patient as the patients unburdened their hearts in detailed memory images, their stories moved from fact to fiction, from mundane recollections to fantastic inventions, from history to imagination. Love and imagination entered psychoanalysis at the same moment. From its inception, psychoanalysis raised the thymus of the heart, that's the burning desire, the longing, which, is called, which it called wishing. I really want this to be usually otherwise, right? I really want this. To priority as an explanatory principle. So let me read that again. From its inception, psychoanalysis raised the thymus of the heart, which it called wishing, to priority as an explanatory principle. The patient was a creature of enthymesis in whom the hemina was awakening, meaning that your longings of your soul are becoming apparent through the process of therapy. You're getting more in touch with what's really bugging you and what you really want. Yeah? And the presence of the analysis analyst, Freud or Brewer, became the first carrier of the imaginal figures. Transference, yes, but from where transferred? Not childhood and the downward reduction only, but platonic childhood and the a priori remembrance of imaginal presences transferred with us into this life and source of its love. So he's making a claim here that when we begin to imagine, yes, we remember the actual events of our childhood, but we remember so much more. And that so much more comes in the way in which we remember the events of our childhood. So he's not trying to say that they aren't true, those events of our childhood. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. That's not the issue at this point. So here's one of those lines. When we fall in love, we begin to imagine. And when we begin to imagine, we fall in love. So... The smiles on your faces, most of you feel something. Some connection has been given. Hillman would say, actually, all that's happened here is through the, the movement of the images and his power of the words, he has unveiled for us what we all really know. This truth 
is self-evident. It can't be exp- you can't explain why this is the case. He's just laid the groundwork, and this is where I think it is completely spiritual, and he invokes platonic in a spiritual sense, is that it's something we all feel, not all feel, some of us feel, I don't want to pour it into other sensibilities, but what many of us feel when we hear that line is we know something deep has been touched, and the soul is stirred, and he says this is what's nourishing for the soul. The soul, at one point he says, insight is the soul's only food. Meaning that when you get this, you as a person are also moved by it, and you're a little more sophisticated with both your imagining and your loving, and you see the relationship between the two of them. He's saying they are never distinct. Your soul is always there in the imagination. The imagination is always there in your soul. To this day, depth psychology is caught by the necessary connection of love and imagination, which it has not yet had the philosophy to place. It has not read Corban as a classic of psychoanalysis. It has stumbled into the heart without a philosophy of its thought. This essay is his attempt in 50 pages to give a philosophy of the thought of the heart. So, it's a philosophy, but it's a philosophy in his style. It's going to be full of images. So now we're going to get into the essay where he talks about three, kind, three sensibilities, and he's going to invoke three hearts. What, do you, what else are you going to do when you talk about the thought of the heart? You have to have three hearts. There's not one heart. There's three hearts. Three styles of which we relate to our hearts. Stories we have about our hearts, what our heart really is for us. Yeah? So I want to give you a little succinctly what those three hearts are, and then we'll go into them uh, a little bit more. So there's going to be the heart of the lion, the lion-hearted. That's the wholehearted individual, uh, the wholehearted sensibility that uh, thinking is doing. It's the passionate person. You know, it's actually a pathology of intensity. They don't want to think, they just want to do. But what they forget is each doing is a thinking. It is an expression of an idea. They just don't want to stop to think about what idea they're embodying, right? That's the wholehearted person. The next next heart is the heart of Harvey. Harvey in 1628, you may recall, you know, it's been a long time ago, in 1628 uh, was the first guy to dissect the heart and determine that not only is the heart duplicious, there's a wall down the middle, but that uh, blood, unlike how we previously understood it, is actually a fixed finite volume that circulates throughout our body. So with Harvey, we have the heart as a pump. The heart is a machine. We can start to analyze it. We can start to measure it. Measure it. When I'm in the heart of the lion, I'm wholehearted. Is there anything to measure? Is the heart divided down the middle? No, I am a wholehearted guy. Can't you feel that? I do what I feel. I don't need to think. Wholehearted. The third heart, he calls the heart of Augustine for good reason. Now, as he's wont to do historically, remember Harvey was 1628 with his divided heart. Augustine is 400. He, he's the pagan that became a Christian. And not only did he become a Christian, he became a wholehearted confessional Christian. 
meaning that before we had Augustine, and I'll read the little quote here, we didn't even have a notion of the relationship of heart and feeling. It, w- it wasn't even on the map. No one historically ever thought about the heart having feelings that were your feelings. Yes, you felt things, but they weren't your feelings. Feeling, as images stir, feelings move. That's what, that's what the Greeks understood. When you go to a drama, it's image after image after image. And catharsis is because the, the images stir up the feelings, and they're not your feelings, they're the feelings of the gods that you are now experiencing, and they move through you. And catharsis is the release we all feel when the drama reaches its apotheosis, right? And that in itself, the movement of feelings is what was, is what was healing, not the holding on and identifying with them. But after Augustine, it became uh, about a thousand years later, common sense to identify yourself with your feelings. I am my feelings, right? So now when I talk about my heart, what I'm really talking about are my feelings. But do you see Hillman's relationship to this? It's a very different relationship. Yes, feelings move through you, but they're not yours. They are your soul's experience of life moving through it, and your job is to tend to the soul which means to keep the images moving and not get caught by one or another of them because then your life now pivots around a point and you're not in motion. You are caught by a particular God because each feeling has a relationship to images which will have a relationship to a God. Hillman's course of therapy is put, adding, stacking all those up one behind the other till you get to the gods and their stories. So it's with Augustine that... Hillman writes that the the confessional mode, the personal confessional mode, enters in, and he he contrasts the personal professional mode with Corbin's idea of the recit or the recitation, and the recitation is related to uh, describing the images of the archetypes of the gods, for example, whereas the confession is our personal mode, and so we live in a world right now you listen to almost any speaker, they will start with a confession. They will start with their own feelings, their own history, and take half of their time before they get to their topic because we live so deeply in that confessional mode. And Hillman tries to move us, and he was famously uninterested in talking about his own personal life, tries to move us back toward what uh, Corbett calls the receipt, the recitation, uh, giving us the images of the gods as opposed to our personal story. Well said, Michael. You yeah. said it. And it's not that he wasn't at all moved by feelings, right. Right. but he wanted to be moved <laughs> by feelings, right. not held in them. Right. So uh, he can weep and laugh with the best of us. Right. You know, It wasn't that he wasn't uh, emotional. Right. It's just that it wasn't about him. It was about the care of the soul. So hence, not much interest in discussing his personal life, which for most of us is challenging, right? I mean, we initially relate often and appropriately so as uh, socialized animals, you know, in that sense, uh, through a feeling for one another, yeah? And a building of a kind of trust. And that's not where Hillman's trust is to be found. So just to capsulize for listeners, 
three hearts, right? The heart of the lion, the doing, I don't need to think wholehearted, the heart of Harvey, the heart is pump, the mechanical heart, and the heart of Augustine, uh, uh, the heart and feeling, your feeling, personal feeling. And, and with this movement, historically, from, uh, uh, from the imaginal, from the archetypal, to the heart as pump and the heart as personal confessional, on the one hand, we began to see the heart as purely mechanical, and on the other hand, we began to see it metaphorically as personal, and we lost the relationship to the archetypal, which was the heart of ancient wisdom. Right. Very nice. And I think as we can all see, uh, we have all three of these hearts now, right? right? And, and Hillman uh, calls these hearts the soul in disguise, and the work of therapy is undisguising them. That because we become what he calls literal about them, we identify with that notion of the heart as the way it really is. And because we're contemporary and sophisticated, we can recognize, well, we have all these are in us. But he's actually not wanting us to identify with any of those three. He doesn't want us to identify at all, but he wants us to have a bigger notion of what the heart or the soul is. But before I go to that, I want to... Uh, read a couple more things about each of the, each of the hearts. Um, so this idea of circulation, right? It's a big one. And it was so big at the time that Shakespeare, as he was, uh, was prescient. It wasn't even in the literature in a big way, but yet it shows up uh, about that time. And uh, so here's a poem that conveys that we would see it today as that what would it be... Uh, epigenetics, black holes, it would be as exciting as that for us, only this is, you know, 1680 or something. Um, I send it through the rivers of your blood, even to the court, the heart, to the seat of the brain, and through the cranks and offices of man, the strongest nerves and small inferior veins, from me receive that natural competency whereby they live. And as Hillman says, circulation was of the blood was in the zeitgeist of the early 17th century. So this is the sensibility that's coming. So, so the hipsters of the day, you know, have, as Michael said, can't be wholehearted anymore. There's a, there's a dividing line down the heart, but the, but the nice thing is it circulates. And Hillman will pick that up later as an alchemical idea that uh, we're always in circulation, and that's the circle or the wholeness of life, to be in circulation. So the other piece I uh, wanted to read was about the confessional mode, and then we'll go on to beauty. Um, because this confessional mode, uh, well, let me read it, and then we'll see if each of you has a little experience of this yourself. Confession supports one of our most cherished Western dogmas, as Gilbert Duran and David Miller here have both said, here being the Aranos Conference. The idea of a unified experiencing subject vis-a-vis -a, -vis a world that is multiple, disunited, chaotic. The first person singular, that little devil of an eye who as psychoanalysis long ago has seen is neither first, nor a person, nor singular, is the confessional voice imagining itself to be the unifier of experience. We want to keep it all together. I just added that. But experience can also be unified by the style in which it is enacted, by the images which form it, 
by its repetitive thematics, and by the relations amid which it unfolds. It does not have to be owned to be held. The heart in the breast is not your heart only. It is a microcosmic sun, a cosmos of all possible experiences that no one can own. So again, this idea that your heart is a mirror of the cosmos and the cosmos lands in you and you reflect that. You don't have to hold it. You don't have to own it to experience it. Just as I, when I gave you the story of Aphrodite or tell you these images of the heart of the lion, the heart of Harvey, and the heart of Augustine, you follow what I mean by the images and you feel things come up. But, you, but that's because the images are moving. They're not yours. You didn't make them, right? Hillman, Hillman's radical step is saying, all of your experience is that way. The imagination is a gift of the soul, and you get to watch it unfold. You don't create in the way you think you create. You create secondarily by combining these things in novel ways, either to make a piece of art or a piece of life, which in Hillman's world should be the same thing. Um, but that's, that's secondary. The gift is the imagination. He takes this from Corban. The creative imagination is not you creating. The imagination itself is inherently creative. Your job is to sit and watch what appears, to get yourself in messes, to get yourself stirred up and watch what appears. And because we're human, you don't have to worry. The messes are going to, if you're in life, the messes are going to come. But you, the, the, the therapeutic work is seeing those messes against a backdrop that becomes very interesting. That's what he calls healing. So that's the three hearts. Uh, it's the, I haven't at all pulled out insight after insight, but that would be hour after hour. But just uh, as the line, uh, when we fall in love, we begin to imagine. We imagine we fall in love. He's probably got 10 other ones that are not at all that, but have that kind of oomph to them in these first 15 pages. I hope you'll read it. Uh, the essay is The Thought of the Heart. Uh, as I found out yesterday, uh, you can get it online in its and entirety. We will, we will yeah. put that up on the New School website so mm. that you'll have the link to the essay. So what I want to do in a moment is uh, pass out uh, three pages that are actually from this essay because I want to look specifically at these three pages where Hillman's now, he's talked about how we're captive to each of these three hearts and this is the way the culture at large and us as expressions of the culture tend to make sense of ourselves. We go to one of these three notions to make sense of our heart, yeah? To express what the heart is for us. The second part of the essay uh, which he calls the heart of beauty, is where he then invokes his notion of what the Greeks meant by beauty, not what we've come to mean by beauty, and how that relates to Aphrodite, and that the, the sensate world is ablaze and is an, as an, is an expression of Aphrodite. But the reason I want to give you these pages is Hillman is thick, he's dense. There are lines you would miss, most likely, as I did excuse me, the first 10 or 15 times I read this, literally, because it's so thick, but they are gems, and you also get his sensibility when you can pull them out. So that's why I wanted to spend the time just going over these three pages. 
And at the end of that, we'll see where we are. But before I go on, this is a good time for questions. Uh, if any of you have anything uh, that came up that's uh, puzzling in terms of what I've been trying to convey. Well, I have a question. Sure. In your opinion, is the heart <clears throat> basically these three part, these three hearts, the lion heart, the Augustine heart, and the Harvey part, heart? I mean, is that your premise that you also work on? Is uh, there, could, in, in a, I guess my question is, could there be the possibility of a fourth heart? <laughs> oh, uh, there could be the possibility of hundreds of hearts. So if you were in a different culture, Stuart, uh, a non-Western culture, I don't think any of these hearts would probably make sense to you. So this is just another supposition, in a sense, right? Another, uh, uh, another... Stuart, here's the hard thing I'm going to say. They're, they're a supposition equal to the degree that you're a supposition, meaning that Hillman's point is that we don't know anything except through ideas in the form of images. Whenever you say anything about yourself, uh, if you call it a supposition, you diminish the power of the ideas that are there in the culture through which you would not be you without them. But is that only because of words, because of having to translate into words and thinking? I mean, would yes, I be yes, would yes. I be better, I'm sorry, would yeah. I be better off to think in terms of images, right. where the images are more fluid and seem to exist pre-literal? And, and does the literal kind of like go against Hillman's idea of being uh, kind of more in touch with the, the journey of the soul? So there's a lot to unpack, and uh, I'll kind of give you the quick response, and then I don't know how we would follow up because it's a... So when you say just words, uh, Hillman would never go with just words, but what happened in the 13th century with a little tradition called nominalism, that we came up with these, this, phrase, this idea that words are merely words, meaning that, that what they mean is arbitrary and is a, is a system of conventions. Hillman's take is that words are divine expressions, gifts from the gods, rooted in culture, and that to be true to words is to be true to the gods. So there could be no such thing as mere words except in a culture that has so lost its base that can use words arbitrarily and therefore reflect and deepen our lostness. So I've said a lot in a little bit, and we could go back and forth to unpack are it. We that and we are that culture. Okay. Yeah. yeah, we are that culture. Yeah. So again, when I say Hillman is radical, I don't know what could be more radical than what I've been expressing in terms of everything being upside down and inside out, in terms of how we normally make sense of ourselves, right? So you can see why people throw him out. But let's see if there's some payoff. Um, any other I, question I, for you? Yeah, I have one other that I want to ask you about. So Hillman's colleague and student, Thomas Moore, who is another great resource on archetypal psychology, he wrote the book, The uh, Astrological Psychology of Marsilio Ficino, Ficino being this Renaissance Neoplatonist to whom Hillman turned when he went to the Warburg uh, collection in London as a primary source for his later work, and he talks about Ficino in this essay and elsewhere. In Moore's book on Ficino, he talks about Ficino's psychology as a solar psychology. 
And he also talks about Roberto Assagioli, the founder of psychosynthesis, as a solar psychology. But Hillman's psychology is a soul psychology. And so my question is, um, does Hillman... Does Hillman see, he, he used Ficino as a fundamental source, but my own take is that Hillman is a huge corrective to this very spirit-centered culture that we live in as opposed to soul-centered, because they make the big distinction between spirit, which moves us up toward abstraction, and soul, which is the dark part of us that's very much part of our experience. So when Ficino and Asajoli are described as solar psychologies. Is that a contrast to Hillman's soul psychology, or is his psychology a variant of solar psychologies? So let me kind of correct one of the things, okay. and, that, and that is the way you characterize the relationship of spirit and soul in Hillman. Okay. So it is fair, Hillman's... Hillman's take is that the soul, as I said, between uh, Aphrodite and Persephone, right? Going from the dark to the light. And what connects the two is Psyche. She is the bridge. Our soul is the bridge between life and death. Mm -hmm. Life and death is light and dark together. So you can't make the distinction, which is neat, uh, spirit is about the light and soul is about the dark. Soul is about grounding spirit in the imagination. And it is, Hillman will say this, it's only by the light of the spirit that we, can, that we can talk and make sense with one another. But the spirit has to be grounded in the imagination, which he actually also sees as a spiritual gift, but it's grounded in the soul. That's the, that's the soul aspect. But imagination is actually a spiritual gift. So the imagination lands in the soul the soul, we are grounded in the soul through the imagination. So it's moving both ways, but it stays within the soul so that it's always grounded in this sense of what he calls being rooted in interiority in the mess of your life and making your mess interesting, showing up for necessity, doing your duty instead of flying above it because you can't, because life is too much. He wants you to be in life. The conventional understanding of the transcendent is, as in many of the traditions, you know, the wheel of suffering, the wheel of misery, the point of the incarnation is to get off and to not incarnate again. Hillman has a, has a very particular position to those people. You know, happy travels. He, he wants them to go off because he wants, to, he, wants those, he wants to be around those people who want to be in the muck and work it out and not think ever about transcending. Now, this is a, this is a kind of smile-wry, smile, uh, sardonic. He doesn't mean it sarcastically because he's not trying to throw anybody out, but he thinks some positions, when they become literalized, like this is what we need to do, this is what spiritual is, he gets very upset. So I just want to say, Michael, well, that's, just, very, oh, yeah, helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, very helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And then in terms of this solar, so... I, I don't remember, I read the more book you're talking about, the solar doesn't stick with me in terms of the, the distinction you're making, so I don't need to hear a little more about what does it mean to have uh, the solar in the way that you mean it, a solar psychology. And 
why don't we just put a marker mm -hmm. for future reflection on okay. that? But what you just said is really helpful. You're listening to a conversation with Michael Lerner and John Goldthorpe. Just having spent two years now reading Hillman, and you, you said so beautifully the first time we talked, somebody asked you if you thought Hillman had made a mistake on something. I can't remember what it was. And what you basically said is, you know, you said something like, you know, you don't have to agree with Hillman about everything, but before you dismiss him for his mistakes or whatever, you have to really understand him. You have to understand the contribution, the depth of the contribution. Mm -hmm. And I think where, where I am placing Hillman for myself, because I'm not really comfortable with a postmodern chaotic psychology that has a wry, sardonic mm -hmm. take on life. Mm -hmm. I accept, you know, when you talk to a lot of people about Hillman and they all say, yeah, Hillman was the bad boy mm -hmm. of, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, his brilliance is enormous, mm -hmm. but our psychology really is our map of the soul. It mm -hmm. is our soul language. Mm -hmm. And I'm not comfortable living with a soul language that's essentially chaotic and sardonic. Right. And so I am drawn more to a map like Jung's mm -hmm. where the psyche is centered in the self. You know, mm -hmm. Hillman decentered Jung. The mm -hmm. self is just mm -hmm. one more image. I am drawn to a map that is imbued with fundamental numinosity that is transpersonal and that includes the synchronistic as active forces of the universe engaging with us. And I, I place Hillman in the period of time when he grew up and lived, which was the immediate post-war period, you know, bright Jewish kid from Jersey City, family owns hotels, you know, goes to Europe, you know, gets deeply immersed with James Joyce and with Watts and, you know, you right, know, right. and all the sort of postmodern mm -hmm. existential angst stuff, mm -hmm. right? That's where, and wanted to be a literary writer mm -hmm. and ended up being a psychologist instead. But imbued with that, you know, uh, you know with that sort of postmodern, uh, you know, nihilistic in a way, uh, not nihilistic, but postmodern, uh, you know, nothing makes sense, nothing holds. And that's not a good place for me to sit. So I can embrace the total brilliance of Hillman's perceptions, but I come back to the wish for a self-centered, numinous universe that is actively interacting with me. So I did use the words rye and sardonic, but I really want to backtrack, and this, the point we're going to get to actually here will address that. Uh, I think it's wrong to characterize Hillman as postmodern, uh -huh. and, he and here's why. Uh -huh. Uh, postmodern, I think you did characterize correctly. Yeah. Uh, however, I would not put Hillman in that camp. Mm -hmm. And I, here's why. Um, he thinks always in terms of a cosmos. And as he says, then something we're going to read soon, the right placement of things. So it's lawful in that degree the gods are lawful. Our lives are lawful to the degree that we are true to that polytheistic imagination. There's nothing secular about it, and there's nothing nihilistic about it. And there is a center, 
the center just happens to always be moving, and your job is to be able to, to move with it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, in this sense, in terms of what you're looking for, it's not your center. There are multiple centers, but each center is its own stable universe. So if you're a devotee of Aphrodite in a polytheistic world, which we could simply say is a many-faceted world, is a pluralistic world that is not secular, but it is a pluralistic world. If you're a devotee, you're, you're together in two ways. You have your own cultists, your own rites in terms of the temple, but you also know that Aphrodite is not the only center. There are multiple centers, and you as an individual are centered through your relationship to all of them, but you might not know much about the, the temple of Hephaestus and making stuff, and you know you don't know, and you know you need to go to them to learn about it, but you honor that God equally. So you are grounded in a cosmos. There's no way in which it's a free-for-all, you know, in the way that you were using the term, chaotic. He actually uh, uses as a way to make sense of cosmos, he contrasts it with chaotic. Uh So his world is a cosmos, and uh, he his the, the rye and the sardonic is is a sophisticated take on the naive. That's all it is. And anytime someone is wholeheartedly literal, meaning caught, his, his he sees them, he feels for them, but he also sees that's the naive person. And when they're, I've been with him when they do this, when the naive person wholeheartedly tells them, you know, their story, and this is the way it really is, and this is what they're going to do to work it out. They're with him, and they're telling him what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. He always has the same response. He smiles genuinely, and he says, send me a postcard. (laughs) Right? Because when a person is naive, what, you know, this is the task of therapy, first of all. How do you sophisticate? How do you how do you bring sophistication to a soul who already knows what it means, and they want you to take away their suffering, right? Mm. That's mostly the the incoming uh, person <laughs> in therapy, right? They just want to be out of pain. Hillman's line is no. Your life is a, a life of pain, <laughs> in that you're going to be in tension. It just happens to also be the basis of creativity. And if you want to live a creative life, you're going to have a life with pain. Mm-hmm. Nothing incoherent, nothing random about it. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. You had a point. Oh, yeah, I was just like, if you're going to have a creative life, you're going to have a life of pain. <laughs> me, me, uh, meaning when I say pain, so let's, let me qualify. Meaning that, that there's going to, you're going to be fed, uh, you're going to be fed by your creative enterprise. But if you're into that creative enterprise, you have to know and you have to have experience. There are moments when you are in a state of deep longing, (laughs) wanting whatever you feel is on its way to arrive. And then when it does arrive, sometimes you don't know what to do with it, or actually, it's not at all what you expected. And you have to wrestle with yourself to be true to what came, not to make it be what you think it should be. And if you don't experience that as painful, I'm suggesting you're not in the game. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm sorry, but that's, that's what I mean by painful. And that the, crea- the creative act, because it is so fundamental. I mean, you're in touch with the forces 
that uh, in, that create nature. You're in the sport, uh, touch with the forces that create the cosmos. You're in touch with the forces that create you. You're at the you're at the you're at the ground, and. Uh, there's a place in which I think you want to, you're so touched by that that you know if you, you don't want to betray that ground, which means you have to change. <laughs> yeah, and that change, I, I don't want it. <laughs> okay, well, my question was, um, I, I'm just bringing up a word, um, sure. will. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, you've used other um, archetypal words. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, how do you see will mm-hmm. in this? Mm-hmm. It's tricky because it has so much to do about surrender, you know, which we think of as the opposite of will. So uh, one of the ways he talks about that uh, is with Keats, and Keats had this term negative capability, and negative capability was the capacity to bear the tension that I was just trying to express, one way to understand negative capability. You have to will yourself to stay in that place because what you want to do is run. And in this sense, this is what Jung means and what Hillman means by the work of soul making is a opus contra naturum. It's a work against nature. You have to will yourself to not run. What you naturally want to do is run. So the will is used in the reverse sense, right? Because you're there to serve that tension and see what comes. What precipitates out of the alchemical vessel is another way to say it. So what I want to do in our remaining time is uh, look at this, because now, uh, as it says, this is five pages in uh, to the heart of beauty, uh, section two of this essay. And what he's trying to do, as I said, is play, as he always does, is place these contemporary... Beauty is something we all have a sense of, right? If I asked you what's beautiful, you know, each person would have a different response. What he wants to do is take it back and put it against the background of... This word came to be, uh, it has Greek roots and it has a Greek sensibility. But over time, over a couple thousand years, it's really changed in the popular understanding of what beauty is. And he wants to place it back in its context where it had a relationship and was an expression of Aphrodite. Yeah? So that's what he's up to. And let's just do it. So how about... um, I'll just read aloud, but I have it because uh, in front of you because it is uh, deep, deep meaning it's dense, and uh, I want to be able to point things out, and I think it will help if you can see them, right? So I'll just start reading. Beauty is that great category which specifically refers to the dos, dos revolutus, the supreme theophany, divine self-revelation. As the gods are given with creation, so is beauty in creation, and is the essential condition of creation as manifestation. Beauty is the, anima, the manifest anima, anima mundi, the soul of the world. And do notice here, it is neither transcendent to the manifest or hiddenly eminent within it, but refers to the appearances as such, created as they are in the forms which they are given, sense data, bare facts, Venus nudata. Aphrodite's beauty refers to the luster of each particular event, its clarity, its particular brightness, that particular things appear at all and in the form which they appear. So this is not an other world God over there. This is, as he said, manifest beauty. It's about life on this earth, which also happens to be an imaginal place, a place of imagination. 
Here we go to the key. Beauty, as Plato describes in the Phaedrus, is the manifestation, the showing forth of the hidden noumenal gods and imperceptible virtues like temperance and justice. All these are but ideas, archetypes, pure forms, invisible didactic talk, unless accompanied by beauty. For beauty alone, he says, has been ordained to be the most manifest to the senses. So this is tricky, but it's the key to life, he's saying, that the other virtues, here he invokes temperance and justice, only, we only relate to them because of their rela- inherent relationship to beauty. Beauty is the thing that we perceive first and most easily. But beauty is always related to the virtues. Beauty, temperance, justice, truth. Right life. But we are caught by beauty, by the appearance of the actual appearance of things. This is no otherworldly philosophy. Beauty is thus the very sensibility of the cosmos, that it has texture, tones, tastes, that it is attractive. Alchemy might call this cosmic gloss sulfur. In the second half of the essay, he works a lot with alchemy, which we won't get to. Michael, here we go for your question. Here we must recall that cosmos, originally in Greek, was an aesthetic idea and a polytheistic one. It referred to the right placing of the multiple things of the world, their ordered arrangement. Cosmos did not mean a collective, general, abstract whole. It did not mean universe is turning around one point or turned into one. This translation of cosmos into universe is a typical Roman imperialism, Mm -hmm. unifying and obliterating the Greek particular sense of the world. Cosmos also implied aesthetic qualities such as becomingly, decently, duly, honorably, credibly. Cosmetics is closer to the original meaning than is our word, our word cosmic. As vast, unspecified, empty. Cosmos was used especially of women in respect to their embellishments. The Stoics used the word for the anima mundi. Here we go. That word cosmic has come to mean unimaginable and vague outer space only tells us further what has happened to Aphrodite, Urana, when severed from her sensate counterpart, Pandemos. So this is code for what happens when we divide the world into spirit and matter. Aphrodite becomes some abstraction out there, some god in another world, and we get the vulgar Aphrodite, the pornographic goddess uh, of today's pornographic world. Completely secular and yet disturbing. Because, it is, because Aphrodite is not imagined, seen to be here on earth in her actual physical manifestations. We suffer because we think this way. We think about over there, right? She's over there. We're here. No, she is right here. So, Michael, in terms of your cosmos, do you get what he's saying about yeah, a no, lawful really ordering? Yeah, this yeah, is really yeah. helpful. Thank you. If beauty is inherent and essential to soul, then beauty appears wherever soul appears. That revelation of soul's essence, the actual showing forth of Aphrodite in psyche, 
Her smile is called in mortal language beauty. Mm. Yeah? And people following? Nice smile. I see Aphrodite in you. Uh, all things as they display their innate nature present Aphrodite's goldenness. They shine forth and as such are aesthetic. Here I am merely restating what Adolf Portman has elaborated at Eranos for 40 years, the idea of self-presentation as the revelation to the senses of essential interiority. Visible form is a show of soul. The being of a thing is revealed in the display of its image. So, how's this for a headbender? Your interiority is displayed in your presentation. You don't need to go inside. Hillman, for a while there was a big, uh, you know, all the journals were ablaze with a psychology of extroversion. Because what he's saying is, as you speak, as you present, so you are. The, the task, the skill, is learning to read the image. The image of you, the image of me, the image of the cup and its placement on the table. It's learning to read the image. You and I are merely images appearing here on this earth in material form. Beauty is not an attribute then, something beautiful, like a fine skin wrapped round in a virtue, the aesthetic aspect of appearance itself. Were there no beauty along with the good and the true and the one, we could never sense them, know them. Beauty as an epistemological necessity, that means a necessity for our thinking, for the ground of our thinking. It is the way in which the gods touch our senses, reach the heart, and attract us into life. And Michael, I want to point out, he did use that word, but he didn't capitalize it. One. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yep. As well as beauty is an ontological necessity, grounding the sensate particulars of the world. With Aphrodite, the world of particulars become... But no, excuse me, this is a great line. This is another one of those lines. Without Aphrodite, the world of particulars becomes atomic particles. Life's detailed variety is called chaos multiplicity, amorphous matter, statistical data. Such is the world of sense without Aphrodite. The sense, then sense must be made of appearance by abstract philosophical means, which distorts philosophy from its true base. And I see the confusion because the footnotes, when I had to copy this from the internet, so it goes from the previous page to right below footnote 38 where it starts with chaos, okay? Now, let me go back here. So, so much has been said in three lines, characterizing the nature, the way most of us imagine the world to be when we're not under the spell of Aphrodite. Because it's the reigning literalism, the disease of our times, you would say. Without Aphrodite, the world of particulars becomes atomic particles, Life's detailed variety is called chaos, multiplicity, amorphous matter, statistical data. You know, you have a 4.2% of getting hit by a car when you go out on the highway today. 
Do you know that your biochemistry is actually what determines your thinking and your capacity to feel? Do you realize that you are a random accident generated by the universe or a series of billions of years of evolutions whereby the mud got up and walked and talked? Do you feel special? That's the story. Do you understand? It's all a picture of an abstraction. He's saying that's the world we live in. We live in this world of abstractions when we're not grounded in beauty and we see ourselves as those abstractions because those are the images we've been given to make sense of ourselves, to make sense of the mystery of ourselves. That's what he calls. It's not that those sensibilities aren't useful, but to see the soul through those sensibilities is pathologizing, is disease-inducing for the soul. I actually wanted to point out this footnote in 37. Is, as is often the case with Hillman, uh, some of the books are a third footnotes, and you don't want to miss the footnotes. The footnotes are little treasures, so I'm going to show you a little treasure here. Uh, footnote 37. Uh, this is from Friedrich, The Meaning of, Af Meaning of Aphrodite, a book Hillman uh, likes a lot. Through Aphrodite, the whole world becomes pellucid and thus so brilliant and smiling. Well, I had to look up pellucid. It means translucently clear. Sounds almost spiritual, doesn't it, Michael? <laughs> Through Aphrodite, the whole world becomes translucently clear, thus so brilliant and smiling. Mm. The power of imagination is without doubt consubstantial with the soul. In fact, with respect to the soul, the imagination is like the soul of the heaven of Venus. In his comment, both the sensible nature of imagination, that it is not merely abstract phantasms in the mind, and the imaginal pellucid nature of sensation, that the world is not merely dense, concrete, and unsmiling, we owe to Aphrodite. And the feeling you're having is because I've simply brought into the room an image. You can't ever ask, is she really there? As soon as you do, you go into another state of mind that breaks the spell, if you will. But this happens to be the spell that your soul hungers for, and it's not unreal, it's just magical. Can you hear the difference? As if, as we said in part one, philosophy takes rise in philos. Philos is love. It also refers to Aphrodite in another way. For Sophia originally means the skill of the craftsman, the carpenter, the seafarer, the sculptor. Sophia originates and refers to the aesthetic hands of Daedalus and Hephaestus, who was, of course, conjoined with Aphrodite and so is inherent to her nature. Again, it's always about the relationships of the gods. We're just reading images here. He's making them visible for us in terms of being able to perceive the meaning, right? With Aphrodite informing our philosophy, each event has its own smile on its face and appears in a particular mode, fashion, style. Aphrodite gives an archetypal background to the philosophy of eachness and the capacity of the heart to find intimacy with each particular event in a pluralistic cosmos, a world ensouled. But Michael, I wanted to point out, as you're saying with hand, head, and heart, 
What he's showing here, or what he's trying to convey, is that philosophy should be grounded in the doing. He's going to build. He's building up to that in the next two paragraphs. But philosophy is not about some abstract concept. If I was just talking about beauty without Aphrodite, it would probably feel like an abstraction. But as soon as I put it in an image, it's grounded, and you can relate to it in a in a much more animated way, right? Because we have a personal relationship. Because your soul is fed by images. Because I have the image. And and yes, because you have the image. Don't don't just have the word. I have the image. Thank you. you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Now, the organ which perceives these faces is the heart. Now, the faces is referring, he's saying, everything, every little flower that you give attention to, every person, every cup, everything has a face. If you give it attention, if you sit with anything long enough, it comes to life, doesn't it? Hmm. Now, the organ which perceives these faces is the heart. The thought of the heart is physiognomic. To perceive, it must imagine. It must see shapes, forms, faces, angels, demons, creatures of every sort of things of any kind. Thereby, the heart's thought personifies in souls and animates the world. This style of thinking is, is what he calls therapy. To engage in this style of thinking is inherently therapeutic. The work of therapy is to give you the capacity to think in this way and then live your own life with its hopefully big ups and downs, full of drama and mystery that you don't have to explain about what does this really mean other than say this is really animating and through beauty am I living a life in touch with truth, beauty, justice, temperance. They all come together, he's saying, on this earth. Humility comes in just as the same answer with will, that in the face, in the presence of the gods, uh, I am, I am, I am humble and grateful because I know these powers. This is like you know when you create. If you when I create anything, uh, this is where the Buddhist Buddhism all comes in with Hillman. You are sitting and you are watching, and and a gift comes. And the humility comes in having the awareness that I didn't do much. And that, that it's only through, beca- the more sophisticated I become, the more I know I don't do much. Um, and that, that controls the inflation of the intellect. Right, right. Because it, it tempers, this is also the Buddhist piece. I mean, there's all these Buddhist echoes, but that's what tempers it. Because the intellect, when the intellect identifies with mind rather than heart, the intellect goes off to abstractions, which I can create ad nauseum. That's the capacity of the ungrounded intellect. And that is a human capacity. Yeah. That's great, Diane. Thank you. Um, so let's do this. Is where, this is where he comes in. Footnote 39. Aristotle recognizes the first meaning of Sophia, referring to the Sophia, skill in art. It usually gets translated... First of all, she's a female goddess, Sophia. Skill in art usually gets translated to wisdom, but here's what he's going to do with it. Aristotle recognizes the first meaning of Sophia, referring to the Sophia, skill in art, of Phidias and Polycletus. But then he goes on to separate the term from its aesthetic base and give it the abstract sense of knowledge of highest objects 
and truth about the first principles. Hmm. Once Sophia has been divided from aesthetic skill, from the work of the hands, the handcraft aspect returns as secondary in the very next paragraphs of Aristotle, e.g. phronesis or practical wisdom. This split between action still detrimentally determines all later Aristotelian-influenced metaphysics, i.e. our world, whereas Sophia originally implies the th that thought and action lie together in any single movement of the aesthetic hand. So again, he's trying to join what has been split, right? We've, we've gone off into the cosmos in terms of abstractions, that there's these principles over there, and then secondary is the work we do with our hands. He's saying, no, they're always together in an informed, an informed cosmos, orderly, lawful. That's a, such a completely different idea from what philosophy gets used as these days. That's right. Hence, he has many rants on philosophy today. <laughs> I'm not going to read the next footnote, so I want to end here with this last event. Uh, it, he has Petrarch, it's usually Petrarch is the way we uh, translate it, sees Laura. So let's remember, Augustine 400. Then we had this event called the Renaissance. And what was the Renaissance? Early Renaissance is uh, 1300s. And it, it occurred when Petrarch, the same Petrarch here, discovered Cicero's letters. And what did Cicero's letters convey? Cicero's letters brought back the Greek sensibility. Cicero was a student of the Greeks. He, had, he was very interested. He had it all down. Um, Petrarch translated the letters and kicked off what we saw as the Renaissance. So the Renaissance is, you know, our take on the Greeks hmm. via Cicero to some degree. But the Renaissance is also Petrarch and Dante, who we're going to meet in a minute, doing something with love and imagination. What do you know? the theme returns. It's almost like he selected this with, you know, yeah, I had a plan. So let's, let's see. Petrarch sees Laura. So here's, now remember, so Petrarch, I think, does he say here, uh, oh no, I think it's an earlier part. So I think Petrarch uh, sees her at a distance. I think, I can't remember if it's Beatrice or, or Laura that's, you know, 12 years old, I think he sees her in a church. I may have this completely backwards. It may be Dante, but... Dante sees her in the church. Church, Beatrice. That's Beatrice. Beatrice. Right, right, okay. So here's Petrarch uh, talking about Laura. Uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, about Laura. I'll say that for now. In pathless forest shades, I see the face I fear upon the bushes or on an oaken trunk or from the stream she rises, flashes on me from a cloud or from clear sky, or issues from a rock. He sees Laura everywhere, right? He's in love. All he can think about is Laura. And what do you know? Laura comes through the face of the world resplendent. Aphrodite, you might recall, is that world. When you're in love, Aphrodite is at hand. But then he makes an interesting statement. These lines are not to Laura, a love lyric, but a description of Laura, personified, the figuration in the heart by means of which aesthetic perception proceeds. It brings to life things as forms that speak. The oak speaks to me, the, tree, the other tree speaks to me, the bushes speak to me. They all speak to me because of my state of being in love. Yeah? 
You're listening to a conversation with Michael Lerner and John Goldthorpe. As we saw above, it was Aristotle's psychology that laid the basis for the connection between aesthesis and the heart. It may be strange to hear me speak in his praise, but there are many Aristotles, and my delight is in Aristotle the biologist who took the world of sense and shaped a heart. In Aristotelian psychology, the organ of aesthesis is the heart. Passages from all sense organs run to it. There the soul is set on fire. Its thought is innately aesthetic and sensately linked with the world. So you see why he likes this idea? That the, that the heart is the, is the organ, uh, is this, this is Michael Solar, actually. The heart is the solar organ through which all these other organs connect, and it is all one. You are a cosmos. You're a microcosm of the macrocosm. Everything is reflected. This is Ficino's um, astrology. Here we go. Last page. Da, da, da. This link between heart and the organs of sense is not simple mechanical sensation. It is aesthetic. That is, the activity of perception or sensation in Greek is aesthesis, which means at root taking in and breathing in, a gasp. That primary aesthetic response. So again, he's merely describing what we all know, but he's trying to get us to, to see what we all know in a different light. When you're in the presence of something beautiful, what's, your body responds, right? Before you have any thought about it, you're, you're already there. And then depending on how you are, you may do something with that thereness, right? But, you know, and the goddess, you have met the goddess. The gasp is her sign. Now, here, here's where he's getting upset. Translators, translators have turned aesthesis into sense perception, a British empiricist notion. John Locke's sensation but Greek sense perception cannot be understood without taking into account the Greek goddess of the senses or the organs of Greek sensation, the heart and the root in the word, that sniffing, gasping, breathing in on the world. Stuart, I hope you're having an appreciation for words, aesthesis, gasping, breathing in, being possessed. I am. Well, I wanted to say that a picture is worth a thousand words, and a word is worth a thousand pictures. Very no. Touche. I feel successful today. What is it to take in or breathe in the world? First, it means aspiring and inspiring the literal presentation of things by gasping. The transfiguration of matter occurs through wonder. Uh-huh. <laughs> this aesthetic reaction, which precedes intellectual wonder, inspires the given beyond itself, letting each thing reveal its particular aspiration within a cosmic arrangement. Mm. Michael, I hope you feel more comfortable here. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about this. <laughs> <laughs> Second... Taking in means taking to heart, interiorizing, becoming intimate within an Augustinian sense. Not only my confession of my soul, but hearing the confession of the anima mundi, the world soul, in the speaking of things. 
Third, taking in means interiorizing the object into itself, into its image, so that its imagination is activated rather than ours, so that it shows its heart and reveals its soul, becoming personified and thereby lovable. Lovable not only to us and because of us, but because its loveliness increases as its sense and its imagination unfold. Phenomena need not be saved by grace or faith or all-embracing theory or by scientific objectiveness or transcendental subjectivity. They are saved by the anima mundi, the world soul, by their own souls and are simple gasping at this imaginal loveliness. The awe of wonder, of recognition, or the Japanese shie through the teeth. The aesthetic response saves the phenomena, the phenomena which is the face of the world. Everything shall perish except his face, says the Quran, which Korban can understand to mean everything except the face of that thing. God, the world, everything can pass into nothingness. Victims of nihilistic constructions, metaphysical doubts, despairs of every sort. What remains when all perishes is the face of things as they are. When there is nowhere to turn, turn back to the face before you. Face the world. Here is the goddess who gives a sense to the world that is neither myth nor meaning. Instead, that immediate thing as image. Its smile, a joy, a joy that makes forever. Well, John, this is so beautiful. Um, and I, I want to say something about my method in this because um, and it's a method I command it's, it's very much in Hillman's mode it's so fascinating to me this is an important conversation for me because I had not gotten this aspect of Hillman I had not gotten the order piece before and um, I scanned the essay but I didn't, I didn't uh, read it in depth obviously mm. But what I want to say about it is that both in our work at Commonweal and in my own inner life, I love embracing error. I love the process of continuously discovering that I'm wrong mm -hmm. and embracing that movement. So you all heard me carry on at some length about how, you know, having read Hillman for two years, I needed Jung's unity of self and not the chaotic and so on. And then you present this to us and I realize, guess what? I'm wrong. You know? But instead of feeling defensive about that or instead of feeling, oh geez, you know, instead it's yet another opening. Um, you know, when you read Hillman's essay on suicide or his essay on masturbation or all of his other you know, there. As you say, Hillman is. You didn't say this. Hillman is an iconoclast. He's constantly breaking images, constantly 
taking you in different directions. You know, he, that's central to his work. I had not found this incredibly important aspect of him uh, that the whole thing is ordered. And for me personally, of course, that's just another image, isn't it? But at least he embraces... Uh, Michael. Just? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, you did not get the punchline here. (laughs) Okay. It is another image. Not just another image. It is another image. Yet, since it is yet another image, right, it too could give way to other images. Let's look at it that way. Here's my hesitation. Right. This is where he is true to Carbon. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's not going to give way. The, the cosmos and sold in its relationship to Aphrodite is not going to give way to uh, another image. Uh, that's foundational and, and fixed in the degree that uh, a cosmology is a gift. Mm-hmm. And you have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so, so that's really useful. So this is foundational. This is fabulous for me. I'm loving it. But let's hear from some other people, other comments, questions. And let's hear from people who haven't spoken yet. Yeah. I'll say something about the images. And uh, I went to an exhibit at the Getty Museum, or I think it was a couple of years ago. Could you speak up a little bit? Oh, okay, I went to... Um, uh, an exhibit at the Getty Museum in Malibu mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago, and it was about Aphrodite. And it completely, just looking at the images there, completely changed my concept. Mm-hmm. Of okay, um, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the things that she was associated, what we hear about it, in it's all sort of distorted, and where you really get it is looking at the images. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I want to. Martin, you may not want to say anything, but Martin Shaw has thought deeply about a lot of related questions. And as you've listened to the conversation, any thoughts or reflections emerge? There's only one very little thing that I think for us uh, that are investigating Hillman further is a key to reading it out loud. Mm -hmm. Just simply reading it out loud. Because actually when faced with a really formidable essay like that, And as an artist, and having an artistic temperament, sometimes it can feel that there's a deficit of image in in the script, in the writing. However, when John reads it, the craftsmanship of his actual putting his work together, this other thing comes in, and I have an entirely different experience of what is happening here. So really, the only thing I have at this point is praise for John's reading of it mm-hmm. and his, his kind of insistent ferocity around it. Uh, I mean that sincerely. But secondly, I think for me, is to go back to Hillman and start reading it out loud. Because mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, a huge doorway for us. That's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Other comments? Yes. Um, Aphrodite is female. Mm. Are we saying that beauty is female-based? Mm. So biological gender, mythological gender are not synonymous? 
So uh, it's a sensibility, just as the Jungians do with masculine and feminine, to make those distinctions uh, hold in the imaginal realm, but not in the biological realm. So uh, I consider myself a devotee, and uh, I challenge any woman. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first part. Jennifer, you had a comment? Well, it's a diffuse feeling to express. Mm. (laughs) I don't know if I can call it a comment, but a kind of gratitude, John, that, Mm. and and let's see, bear with me, a kind of wanting to honor my own and maybe in part the room's uh, inclination to weep a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the almost a gratitude and relief and confusion and knowing and belonging and um, and I think as Martin spoke about your reading aloud of the words it was enhanced by that I don't need to know what it all means or break it apart but I'm just very grateful for it Um, Thank you. So Jennifer, love and imagination, the heart, thought of the heart. So as I was reading that paragraph where I got to, uh, uh, yeah, the last paragraph when I was reading uh, the awe of wonder, of recognition, or the Japanese shie through the teeth, I started to weep. And then I'm reading, I got to pull it together, right? (laughs) Uh, um, But there's something... This isn't this what the this is how the heart responds in the face of beauty, and it also proves his point that the heart is fed by reflection, right? Because what we're doing is reflecting the truth of the relationship of beauty to the heart, and we see it, feel it, understand it when it's presented in this way, and the natural response, I think, are tears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. John, I want to take us beyond Hillman for a moment. When you were here (laughs) last year and in our subsequent email conversations and so forth, you pointed me to some extraordinary books on the the romantics and the continuation of of the tradition of um, opposition to materialist uh, reality. And you also said you were now reading Goethe. And I just wondered, where are you now in your own explorations? What is most alive for you now in your own inner work and your explorations of uh, these great traditions? I feel that our understanding of uh, science and technology um, is a reflection of a possession state, meaning that we honor it as a kind of God, that that's where truth and knowledge resides. And as he said here, when you do that, we are merely atomic particles. And you know, Michael, this table actually isn't real. I mean, it's just, it's amazing that I can't put my hand through it. Um, And we go into these kinds of abstractions. But abstractions literalized are called the virtual world. And the virtual world is becoming... Uh, a dominant world. Um, and I think this is a horror we barely can begin to hold. Um, and how to talk about that in a, in a world that deifies such a thing 
because our economic system uh, sees it as the engine of growth, right? And that we no longer can distinguish uh, facts, information, ideas, knowledge, wisdom. That's a hierarchy. And you can't get to wisdom from the facts. Wisdom can put facts in their proper place, but you can't go the other, you can't go the other direction. You can't build wisdom from facts. And so our culture is becoming a, fa a, a factoid culture that sees everything literally. You know, I have a biocomputer that's now addressing itself to you, and I hope it doesn't malfunction or I lose my memory. <laughs> right? I am meat on a, I, I, I am a, I am a machine on a, on a stick of flesh. That's where the story's going. So how does a person address this without being seen as a complete nut job? Because to call into question what the culture so deifies at this point um, is difficult. So I'm trying to find my way around uh, in terms of how to approach this in a way where it can be addressed in a, in a rigorous way. And that's why I'm so interested in Goethe because I think he has in his uh, way of making sense of nature, of natural phenomena, what we call science, um, he has another way that I think is equally legitimate that allows us to stand in a place to see our, what I would call our craziness. So Goethe, and what about the exploration with the romantics? Is that continuing? Or oh yes, definitely. Okay. I'll never end with the romantics. Okay. So the romantics, you know, so Goethe, we, we got to the romantics through Goethe. Goethe was our first romantic, right? And they all, they, all, they all followed him. What they all had in common was a love of nature. And that actually, how is it that the romantics are poets and, what they're in and the way they express their poetry is through nature? So through, can we come to nature in a new way? Which is actually an old way. The romantics aren't something new. I think it might be, I don't know who it is, oh, it's Bamford that characterizes the uh, romantics are Greek genius plus the sense of an individual self. Mm. That's the distinction. And the individual self came about through these, uh, as we said, you know, uh, in Augustine's Confessions, 400. Before that, there isn't, this is hard for us to imagine. The Greeks did not have a word for an individual. There was no unique person being talked about, even though they had the birth of democracy and all, that, all these other things. I mean, this is a couple-hour talk to be able to get your head <laughs> into that sensibility. But so the person, you know, is, is not going to go away. And the person came as a, as a consequence of this development that uh, ended in science. You know, the literalizing of the world. It was an individual who did science. <laughs> it wasn't a Greek who did science in the way that we do it. So the romantic position shouldn't go away. We, I am an individual. You know, I, I'm not at all proclaiming I'm not. But how do I, as a romantic, address these concerns? So I'm always into the romantics. John Goldthorpe, thank you for being with us at the New School. Michael, thank you very much. Yeah. Very satisfying. You've been listening to a conversation with Michael Lerner and John Goldthorpe. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. <laughs>
That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.